This is a Sunday talk by Thomas McFarlane entitled Investigating the Nature of Time, recorded on Sunday, November 13, 2011, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So, good morning. Welcome, especially to the people who haven't been here before. So, the Center has a mission, and there are three parts to it. One of the parts of the mission statement is to help demonstrate that the mystics in all the different religions testify to a common universal truth, and that truth is a non-dual truth. The second part is to help foster a community of spiritual practitioners who want to follow a spiritual path and realize this truth for themselves. And the third part is to help foster the development of a new worldview, which can show that the truths of science and this non-dual truth of the mystics are compatible with each other. So over the years, Joel and I have been working a lot on this together. And from time to time, we give talks about it. So this is going to be one of those talks. I was invited last month to speak at the Science and Non-Duality Conference in California. And I was given a spot there to speak for about 20 minutes. And so you're not going to get the 20-minute talk today. Uh, I have the opportunity here to give you a more in-depth presentation, whether you like it or not. The theme of the conference this year was time. So my talk is going to be on the subject of time and how we experience time personally, as well as how time is viewed by science and relating both of these to this non-dual truth that the mystics all testify to. So what is time? Well, it turns out we talk about time all the time. The Oxford Dictionary, in fact, the, the people who put it together, apparently studied all the words that we use in the English language, and the number one most commonly used noun in the English language is the word time. And it's interesting if you consider how we speak about it. We talk about time like it's a kind of substance. You can have a lot of time. You can have too much time on your hands. You can have too little time. Maybe you ran out of time. Uh, maybe you're living on borrowed time. <laughs> um, you can waste your time. You can squander your time. You can try and make up for lost time. Sometimes we try and find the time to do things, or we lost track of the time, uh, or we can even try and make the time for something. So it's like this something that we can have, we can give away, we can trade it, we can share it with other people. It's kind of interesting the way we talk about it. We also talk about time as if it's something uh, in motion. So time, we say, moves really fast, or it moves really slowly. If it moves really fast, we might say, well, time just flew by. And if it goes really fast, then things happen so quickly, they happen in no time at all. <laughs> so it has this quality of moving. And it also has uh, these other kinds of qualities, like we talk about, well, that was a really bad time. Uh, oh, that was a really good time. Uh, and if you do something, you want to be sure to do it at the right time instead of the wrong time. <laughs> so we've got this speech around time also that has this qualitative element to it that we attribute to time. 
So we talk about it a lot, uh, but do we really know what it is? What is time? If you look at our lives and how we experience it, the first thing you notice, probably, is that we really take it for granted. Uh, most of us conceive of our lives as individual beings born into this world uh, at a particular point in time. So there was a time before we were born, and then we were born, and our lives uh, progress through time, and then there's a day that we'll die. So our lives are embedded in this thing we take for granted as uh, existing prior to our existence. So we conceive of it as really fundamental to reality. Even in our moment-to-moment -moment experience, we experience time as the flow of uh, experiences. Uh, things arise in our experience. Uh, right now, this room is arising in our experience. And uh, an hour ago, it wasn't in our experience. And so we experience things as arising from a future and then a couple hours from now, this room will no longer be in your experience, and you'll consider that to have gone into your past. And so our moment-to-moment -moment experience, we conceive of as this flow of like, uh, we kind of have this window of experience, and these things flow through it from the future into our experience and then out into the past. And all of this isn't just some abstract philosophical reflection because really if you think about this, our moment-to-moment -moment experience also has this quality of dissatisfaction and suffering to it if we try to resist that flow of things through time. So if we're, for example, something is arising in the present moment, uh, we didn't want it to arise. It came in from the future, here it is, whoa, I don't want that. So we're pushing that away, we're resisting what's present. Or maybe we're clinging on to something. It came and we really like it. We want it to, to stay here. But of course, it's destined to flow off into the past, inevitably. So this impermanence of things flowing through experience is something that can be the source of our suffering if we're clinging to these things or resisting them. So that's an important aspect of time, is that it's not merely some abstract philosophical thing, but it's really tied in with our moment-to-moment -moment suffering that we experience. And so time is important in a spiritual sense to investigate because it is so closely tied up with our experience of suffering. And of course, the biggie is our death. If we conceive of our lives as being born in time, ultimately our lives are going to end in time. And that, of course, is a, is a big source of suffering, or can be for us, if we are identified with this ephemeral human life. So we really take time for granted in our personal experience. And if you look at science, it also takes time for granted. The story that science is currently telling us about the universe is that it was created about, oh, 14 billion years ago or so in this event called the Big Bang, and space and time expanded, and stars formed, and stars exploded and created heavy elements, and they eventually coalesced again, created this planet, and this is all happening through the course of time, matter and energy evolving within the universe, and eventually life arose on Earth, and here we are, particular organisms on this planet within this vast cosmos of 14 billion years of time. But even more fundamentally in science, there are laws that have been discovered. And these laws also take for granted the existence of time. So take, for example, Newton's laws of motion. 
If you write them down mathematically, you'll see that there's a little t variable that's always in there, and that represents time. And it's taken for granted. It's built right into the equation there. You can't write down Newton's law without including time in it. And so it isn't something that Newton's law explains. It's something that Newton's law takes for granted as pre-existing. And similarly, if you look at any of the other equations, say Maxwell's equations that describe electromagnetic phenomena, light, and so on, it also has a time parameter that describes how these light waves change and transform through time. And it's built right into the equation, just like in Newton's law. And the same with quantum mechanics. It's founded on the Schrodinger equation, which also has the time parameter built right in there. So even these fundamental equations that form the foundation of physics have this time built right into them without really explaining what it is. If you think about it, though, the laws of physics really have to be this way because what is a law of physics? A law of physics is designed to be something that doesn't change in time. It's describing some orderliness in the world that is fixed. So if you had, for example, a law of nature, but it changed from day to day, you wouldn't call it a law of nature. On the other hand, the laws of nature describe the transformation of phenomena. So that's why they necessarily involve the parameter of time. So on the one hand, the laws of physics themselves are designed to be unchanging but they're also designed to be describing what does change. And so that's why they necessarily involve the time parameter. If the laws of physics didn't connect with phenomena that changed at all, we wouldn't call them laws of physics then either. They'd just be, say, a universal constant, for example. So from that perspective, you can see why the laws of physics would have to presuppose time, because really the very notion of a law of physics involves this idea of time and change. But still, it doesn't get us any closer to understanding what time really is. So what is time? Well, this is something that is quite mysterious. People across the ages have pondered it. One of the most eloquent investigations of time can actually be found in St. Augustine's classic, The Confessions. And this is what he writes. What is time? Who can easily and briefly explain it? Who can even comprehend it in thought or put the answer into words? Yet isn't it true that in conversation we refer to nothing more familiar or knowingly than time? And surely we understand it when we speak of it. We understand it also when we hear another speak of it. What then is time? If no one asks me, I know what it is. But if I wish to explain it to him who asks me, I don't know. So this really expresses pretty well, I think, this sense that we all take it for granted. It seems so familiar, but when we start to really reflect on it, we've got no clue what it is we're talking about. And even in physics, listen to the celebrated 20th century physicist Richard Feynman. He's a Nobel Prize winner. He helped invent quantum electrodynamics. This is from his Feynman Lectures on Physics. He writes, What is time? It would be nice if we could find a good definition of time. But maybe it's just as well if we face the fact that time is one of the things we probably cannot define. But what really matters anyway is not how we define time, but how we measure it. 
This is a really profound statement, actually, and it harkens back to Einstein's revolution in the conception of time and space. What Einstein did was he said that time is what clocks measure. And this really is a profound revolution because before Einstein, Newton's idea of time was like similar to Newton's idea of space. It's this absolute kind of fixed static container for things. And things just flow through it. They don't affect the container or interact with it really at all. It's just this absolute fixed space. And the world arises in it and passes away. Phenomena take place in this continuum of time. And so it was conceived as objectively existing in this way. And Einstein said, let's just define time as that which clocks measure. And the interesting consequence of this, which accounts for all the weird things in relativity, is that if clocks are running at different rates, then you actually have different times. So there's not one time anymore. There's time relative to a clock. So if we want to understand time, we really need to understand exactly how time is measured. And this gets very interesting. So I'd like to investigate this with you in a little bit of detail because it's quite revealing to consider and make more explicit exactly how we measure time and, in a sense, create it through the very act of measurement. So if time is what clocks measure, first thing we have to do is say, well, what's a clock? Well, here's a clock. Right? That's the easy answer. So there, there are various kinds of clocks. This is an example of an artificial clock. Another artificial clock, more primitive, is like an hourglass uh, with sand in it. You turn it over, and the sand usually runs through the hourglass in a particular amount of time. And then you can measure time using that tool. Another artificial kind of clock is a pendulum. You hang a weight from a string, and it swings back in a regular way in a particular amount of time, and you can use that as a clock. It's, of course, the basis of a lot of the grandfather clocks. And then there are also natural clocks, naturally occurring phenomena that are periodic that we can use as clocks. For example, one clock that's handy to use is your pulse. Heart beats about once every second. So we've got these natural clocks and these artificial clocks, and we can use these to measure things. And how exactly do we do this measurement of time? Well, once we've chosen our clock, for example, our pulse, we can then measure the duration of something, like the duration of the meditation. You could have been sitting there while we were meditating and counting your heartbeats, and you might have gotten to something on the order of 600. But if your neighbor's heart was beating a little faster or slower, they wouldn't get 600. And so it's not a real accurate, what's called calibrated measurement. So in addition to choosing our clock, we also, in order to make our measurement scientific, we need to choose a common clock. So one of the earliest standardized clocks that were used by people is the sun as it passes through the sky. Most people would agree when it's day and when it's night. And for example, if you're going to measure the length of a month, you can count the number of days until the moon changes, goes from being a full moon to a new moon and back to a full moon again. And if you count the number of cycles of days between those two cycles of the moon, you'll get about 30. 
And everyone should agree on this because they're using the same standard of the day. And similarly, you could measure the length of a year, for example, begin at the summer solstice and count the number of day and night cycles as the year cycles through. And so you're comparing these two phenomena, one of which you call your clock and the other of which you call that which you're measuring. And you compare these and you use counting in the comparison and the result of what you've counted is the measurement of time. So you say the year has 365 days. And that's really a shorthand way of saying when I use the cycle of day and night as my clock and compare that cycle with the cycle of the year from solstice to solstice, the number I get is 365. And if you do the same thing, you should get 365 also. And it's because there's an agreement to use the same basic clock that there can be a uniformity of the measurement results. And so if we were to use our pulse, we may disagree on things and our science wouldn't work very well. We wouldn't be sure if the number we had counted, if it varied, we wouldn't know if that varied because the length of time varied or if it varied because our clock was varying. And so in order to make clear this distinction between what's being measured and what's doing the measuring, we try and make the measurement device and the measurement process as fixed and standardized as possible. And this kind of precision and standardization of the measurement process is what gives science its precision and allows us to then correlate the results of the measurements in a precise mathematical way and discover laws. And only if you impose these restrictions upon the process of making measurements do you guarantee that your results will have a consistency to them that allows you to do science. So we have to choose our measurement device, some kind of standard. We have to choose a standardized way or procedure of making the measurements. And we also need to have a standardized way of recording our measurements and, and counting. So if I were to count, say, the length of a year, and if I counted the cycles of day and night, um, once when the sun rises, and, and then I count it again when the sun sets, and then another time when the sun rises, and another time when the sun sets, I would get a number twice as large as someone else who counted just when the sun rises and then when the sun rises. So I have to be clear about what exactly it is in my counting. Am I counting every time the sun rises or when it rises and sets? So we have to be clear about that. And we also have to be clear about how we express our counting. I could be using base 60, and you could be using base 10. Someone else could be using base 2, and they write this down. And if I interpret that base 2 number in terms of base 10, it's not going to be the same number as, uh, as they intended it to be. And so we also have to standardize or uh, make explicit our methods of recording, our counting. And so we have these conventions of arithmetic as well that are built into this measurement process. So we have all these different aspects of making a measurement of time that are really implicit. We think, oh, well, you just look at the clock and you read it, and that's a measuring time. But... Implicit in that, it's really quite complicated that you have to accurately specify all of these steps in the process of measurement in order to get the result that we call time. 
we don't agree upon the time unless we all agree upon how to measure it. If not implicitly, then explicitly. Now if you examine this a little bit more closely, you can see that the counting that we do when we measure periods of time is really a kind of making distinctions. We have a distinction when the sun rises. That's the distinction between night and day. And then we have a distinction in our counting from 1 to 2, from 2 to 3. And you can actually express the mathematics of counting in terms of just the act of making distinctions. And so the counting, as well as the experiential distinction between night and day, what we're counting, are both really based on distinctions. And so the act of making a measurement can be really reduced to this act of making distinctions. We have a distinction between night and day. We count that using these distinctions that uh, we use to make up numbers. And then we get a measurement result, which is a number, which can be expressed in terms of distinctions. We correlate those numbers with each other using mathematics, correlating one set of distinctions with another using consistent distinctions. And so this whole system of distinctions is this beautiful edifice that we call science. But the important thing is that it all traces back to this consistency in how we make the distinctions. Now the mathematics, of course, is consistent if we all agree on how to count. And the measurement process is all consistent if we agree on how to make the measurements. But then it comes back to this distinction between night and day. And this is something we should investigate a little bit more closely. And this is also where it starts to connect more with our immediate experience. Our day-to-day experience can be seen to be made up of these kinds of distinctions. So, for example, we all learn to distinguish between colors. We learn that the sky isn't green on a clear day, it's blue. We learn that a Douglas fir isn't pink, it's green. And so we have these rough distinctions we make, for example, between colors. And we just learn to associate these in a consistent way, meaning that we all have kind of an intersubjective agreement. Now, of course, if you start getting too subtle about the shades of colors and things, you'll have disagreements with people. So if we investigate this way that we make distinctions in our everyday lives and we look at it closely, we'll see how it is that we create this narrative of time in our experience, if you look at it closely. And we do this using memory. So let me illustrate this. I've got this penny whistle here to help me. So you probably just heard what you would call four toots of this whistle, right? Now right now, those four toots, you're not hearing them, right? So you're not hearing four toots right now, but still you say, oh, I heard four. Well, how do you know there were four? Well, you heard the first one, and oh, there's a toot. And then it's gone. And then you heard another toot. And because you still remembered the first toot, you said, oh, this is a second toot. So it's because there's a memory of the first toot that you can call the second toot the second one instead of another first one. If you forgot the first one, then you would just call the second one, oh, that, there's a toot again. You wouldn't even say again. You'd just say, there's a toot, there's a toot, there's a toot, there's a toot. If you keep forgetting, you won't be able to count them, right? So 
you need to be able to remember the first one to call the second one the second one. And the same with the third. You have to remember the first one and the second one. Now, is that the first toot in a new sequence, or is that the fifth toot? <laughs> you know, so it all depends on how you start defining things. Was that the end of the first sequence or a new sequence and so on? And, and so through memory and these experiences of these phenomena arising and falling, our minds automatically tie these together in a sequence that we call a sequence in time. Right? And in our lives, this is how we generate this story of I. We have these experiences of things coming and going, and we remember things in the recent past, and we tie them up, and we stitch all this together, and poof, out comes this full-blown drama that becomes the days of our lives, right? And so what are the props of this story? Well, the props in this story are these, these events like toots of a whistle, but they become a little bit more complicated for example, the sun, we go out and see the sunrise each day. Well, if you're in Eugene, you might not. But <laughs> let's just say it's the summer. And, uh, <laughs> and you see this big, yellow, bright ball in the sky, and it's up there. And then it's gone. And then the next day, wow, there's a big, bright, yellow ball. And then you say, oh, well, there's the sun again. And then you see it the next day. Oh, there's the sun again. And so because these experiences are similar to each other, we tie them together and associate them with each other. So we're not saying, oh, there's something else. We say, no, that's the same sun that I saw yesterday. And so not only do we tie these suns together that we have remembered but we actually attribute those to something that really exists out there. That, for example, at night, we say, oh yeah, the sun's there, I just don't see it. Now notice we don't say that about the toot. Between the toots, you don't say, oh, well, there's a toot there, I'm just not hearing it, right? <laughs> but when the sun's not there, we say, oh yeah, well, the sun's still there, I just don't see it. So that's kind of the distinction here with something we do with the sun that we don't do with the toots. We actually, in addition to tying them together, we say, well, even when I'm not experiencing it, it's still there. That's a little extra leap that we make to create these objects in the story and kind of make it seem like it has a continuity that transcends the, the individual experiences that we actually have immediate access to. And so we similarly have experiences of things like the moon. Uh, we can distinguish that from the sun. It's not nearly as bright and it has, these, uh, has a kind of grayness to it and has a little pattern to it. Uh, we can actually look at it without blinding our eyes. And, and we can see it at night. So there are all these different things about the moon that we associate with that object. So we call it the moon. We have a different word to label that. Uh, and similarly with stars and trees and all sorts of other objects in our experience. We have this capacity to recognize their common attributes and associate them with each other through a kind of similarity using our memory. We tie them all together in this way. And then we posit something that exists objectively out there that's giving rise to all this, that has a continuity 
And this we call continuity in time. So we imagine this time to exist as well. Scientists do a similar thing with their theories. They make their precise measurements. The science is really a refinement of our ordinary experience. So what they're doing is something very similar, except in a very precise and systematic way that allows them to use mathematics to make these correlations. And that's what gives mathematics and science its power. But we still don't know what time is. We've seen how this time is constructed in our experience, but what's really the root of this? Where does, where does it come from? So let's look at this a little bit more closely. I'm about to toot this whistle again, but I haven't done it yet. But you know what it sounds like, right? Because you heard it a few moments ago. So you have a memory of it. But I'm about to toot it now. It's almost coming from that future, right? It's not quite here yet. It's, so we have this thought that it's in the future and it's maybe a possibility or we sense, oh, it's really coming. But in any case, that toot is not present right now. But we imagine it to be somewhere in the future. It's kind of coming down the pike, right? There it is. Boom, it went through. It's like a bullet train, you know. Now, right now, it isn't present, right? Just like it was not present before. So it's the same not being present of the two. Only now, instead of saying it's in the future and it's coming, we say, oh, it's in, it's in the past and it's gone. So we're telling a different story about the same situation, and the situation is that there's no two. But instead of imagining it in some future that we're not experiencing... We imagine it in some past that we're not experiencing. So in either case, this future is something we're imagining and not experiencing, or it's a past that we're imagining and not experiencing. So this absence of the two is the basis for projecting the future and past as these places where things come from and go to. Now, if you look at this carefully in the present... The toot in the present is something that you recognize as distinct from, say, something else, like the stomp of my foot. They both arise and pass away in the present. But you know the difference between them, and that's because of memory. You know what a toot sounds like as opposed to a stomp, right? So your mind is able to discriminate between those two. And so when you hear a stomp, there's a sound present, but there's not a toot present. So the mind's able to distinguish between different types of phenomena. But more importantly, it's able to distinguish between the toot and the absence of the toot. If you weren't able to identify the toot at all, let's say you'd never heard it before, you would look around and you say, what is that? I've never heard that kind of sound before. You might have had this experience in your life at some point. You heard some sound, but you had no idea what caused it, what it was. Oh, that was some sound. What was that? So there's a sound, but the mind is not able to identify it. But once it's able to identify it, you can then say whether it's present or not. So the toot is present. And we're able to say it's present because we can distinguish it from when it's not present. And when it's present, 
what do we say about its non-presence? We say, well, that's now in the past. So right now, the toot is not present. Now, in that moment when it was present, where did its non-presence go? Well, normally, we think of the non-presence of the toot as having gone to the past, because the toot is present. How can its non-presence be present, right? Or you could just call it silence. So the silence is gone, and the sound is there. And so, in a sense, the, the sound excludes the silence from existing. That's our normal way of thinking of it. And the silence is something that now exists in the past, and the toot is present. And then the toot is gone, and the silence returns. And the toot is in the past. So the very act of distinguishing sound from the silence creates time, because the silence becomes something that we regard as happening in the past. The toot came from somewhere, and where did it come from? It came from the silence, but where's the silence? It's no longer here. Where is it? Well, it must be in the past. If you look in your own experience, you might see that this is how it works. That the very identification of something arising out of nothing creates the sense of time. If you regard that nothing to have been excluded by the something. If you look at what we've done so far, we've traced time through science, through this act of measuring things, down to these acts of making distinctions with counting and making distinctions between phenomena, and ultimately the distinction between phenomena and no phenomena. And really the seed of time is right in that first distinction between something and nothing. And so if we want to know the nature of time, we really have to go back to this very first fundamental distinction between something and nothing and ask ourselves, well, what is the nature of that distinction? Is it a real distinction? Is it merely an imaginary distinction? And that's something to investigate in your own experience. But I can tell you what the mystics say about this, they testify that reality is non-dual. So if reality is non-dual, well, that means ultimately the distinction between sound and silence is not real. It doesn't mean it can't be experienced. It means that when we do experience it, we're experiencing an imaginary distinction between sound and silence. A way you can get a sense of this, maybe, is you can ask yourself, well, can you separate the sound, that immediacy, right in awareness? Can you separate that from awareness? Is there a real distinction between that sound and awareness? Well, if there were, how could awareness be aware of it? If you took it out of awareness, right? If awareness didn't have contact with that sound... In a certain sense, if it wasn't that sound, there would be no awareness of the sound. So the, the sound, you could say, is inseparable from the awareness. The sound is fundamentally the awareness. And similarly, the silence, when there's no sound, 
is also inseparable from the awareness. In fact, you could say the silence is the awareness. And the metaphor that the mystics like to use is that of the ocean and the waves. This reality of awareness is like the ocean and the sounds arising are like the waves. And you cannot separate the wave from the ocean. The wave is of the same nature as the ocean. And when a wave arises in the ocean, is there a true distinction between the wave and the water? Where would you draw it? You can certainly imagine, superimpose upon that, oh, here's a wave and I'll decide to mark it off here. And you can imagine a distinction there. But in the water itself, that distinction is not to be found. Now, this is just a metaphor, an analogy that mystics use to describe this. But what's seen then from this perspective where there's a seamlessness of the sound and the silence is that when the sound arises, it doesn't exclude the silence. The silence is there even when the sound arises. It's as if the silence is a kind of space and the sound is arising in the space and passing away in the space. And if the silence is not excluded by the sound, then it isn't projected as something that happened in the past. It's still present. The silence is eternal. It's always there, and the sounds are just arising and passing within it while it remains. And so, from that perspective, the absence of the sound doesn't come and go. And so, it's not something that we say is in the past or in the future. It's always present. And so, from that level of insight, there is no time. The activity of time is created by, in a sense, losing track of that silence that is really always there. So if you lose track of that silence when the sound arises, if you incorrectly cognize that sound as something that excludes the silence, then what do you do with the silence that's always there that you're not seeing? We intuit it that it's still there. What's on the other side of that distinction? Well, we push it into the past. We say, well, if it's not here, then it must be in the past. And so this is how that first distinction creates time by creating an image of this eternal silence and pushing it off into the past. Time is created as an image of eternity. And this is, in fact, the way Plato described time. In his dialogue, The Timaeus, Plato says, the creator sought to make the universe eternal, so far as it might be. Now the nature of the ideal being was everlasting. But to bestow this attribute in its fullness upon a creature, upon some created thing, was impossible. Wherefore, he resolved to have a moving image of eternity. And when he set in order the heaven, he made this image eternal, but moving according to number, while eternity itself rests in unity. And this image of eternity we call time. You could say this talk is sort of a commentary on that passage, unpacking one interpretation, anyway, of what Plato was getting at there, this moving image of eternity, how we take this eternal timelessness and create an image out of it as something in the past and therefore create time. 
So we've seen how we can trace time all the way back through science and measurement to distinctions and to this very fundamental distinction all the way to its very root in non-dual seamlessness between time and timelessness. So we really isolated the root of time in non-duality or more specifically this departure from non-duality. So this hopefully will give you a sense of how science can be seen as compatible with this teaching of the mystics, that reality is fundamentally non-dual. And it has import for our own personal lives as well and our spiritual path because if time is ultimately imaginary, if reality is ultimately non-dual, then our fear of death is based on this mistaken perception that there is something called time and a being that arises in time and passes in time. In addition to the form being empty, in other words, the time is empty of inherent existence, you also have this emptiness as form, which you could say is the fact that experience arises. This emptiness just isn't an everlasting nothingness. It's manifesting all of this form and really the wondrous miracle of it is that it manifests it in such a way that there's this orderliness to the form, what Plato called this moving image of eternity according to number. There's this capacity to, to imagine these distinctions in such a way that there's an orderliness to experience. And without that kind of order, well, what would we have? We'd have just a big mess, right? There'd just be a huge flux of experience with no order whatsoever, and we wouldn't have a world, really, that you could identify or experience at all. Conversely, if there wasn't anything arising or passing at all, if everything was just static, again, you wouldn't really have any kind of world that could be experienced. And so the manifestation is such that there is this possibility of experiencing order. So that's the talk I would have liked to have given at the Science and Non-Duality Conference and I'm glad I had the opportunity here to share it with you. Comments or questions? It seems like, strictly speaking, we could say that our, in our experience, we have what is here and now, and then we have imaginary stuff. Mm -hmm. The only real, so to speak, the only real stuff in our experience is right now. And everything else, the whole scientific, pursuing physics in the world and everything, the universe, is all imaginary. If you want scientific truth, you can go and study science. If you want absolute truth, then you have to find something that's absolutely true. So it's, it's important to make the distinction here between the kinds of truths that are based upon lots of assumptions that science makes about how it discovers things and <clears throat> how it formulates things and uh, assumptions about things that exist that we don't have immediate access to, basically theoretical entities and things like that. It's all ultimately speculative. It works very well in experience, and it's very useful. It's not to denigrate it at all, and it's in fact very beautiful. But if you want absolute truth, truth that can't be denied, then all of that ultimately gets pushed aside, and you're left with just this. So there's tea in the back, and you're welcome to stick around and converse afterwards informally. Thank you.